You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles. The projection is Tesmicha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Kolakowski. Literature, um, and the Torah is much more than literature, but we know in literature the idea of the child who comes from one home and is raised in another. Uh, a child who uh, seemingly can develop along different lines than he might have been destined. Uh, this is something that has captured the fascination of playwrights and authors, and obviously in movies. Uh, probably since the time of the silent era, there have probably been hundreds and hundreds of films that used as one of its plot points the idea that here was a child that was adopted, that was by other parents. Um, I want to zero in on two films that deal with not just the very little with the fate so much of the adopted child and how that child might be uh, have altered or changed or the same, but rather about the family, the parents, the mother and father, the pain that they had of childlessness and what it takes to get a child through adoption. And these films are very similar part. One is from 1941, George Stevens' Penny Serenade, and 1951's William Keeley's Close to My Heart. Um, the titles are <laughs> obscure, to say the least, but they both are about an attractive couple whose wife is rendered impossible to have children and what they have to go through to uh, get a child and the difficulties that society in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s were erecting before children were being uh, taken into homes. I think Yitzchak, you know, it's on the heels of uh, you know, the 19th century, where we have the horror stories of children from orphanages being taken in and uh, gone into white slavery and other sorts of terrible things that happened. Uh, they became thieves like Fagin's Boys uh, and Dickens' Oliver Twist. Um, I think what happened in the 20th century, and for the benefit of the North American communities was they became very strict about letting these children out, that it wasn't just come and take this child. And now you're going to have a human being that you can abuse. And I think that indicated a, an advancement and, and Hollywood zeroed in on this theme about how couples who cared and wanted so much to have a child had to earn the right to have the child. And both of these films really deal with that. Um, and uh, and it's the centerpiece of the growth of this couple, uh, Irene Dunn and Cary Grant. This was George Stevens um, uh, using Cary uh, in a way that I think uh, he later developed uh, in, in the next year in a film, uh, The Talk of the Town, where he has Carrie teamed up with Gene Arthur. I think George Stevens um, did a lot uh, to help create the Cary Grant persona. Uh, Cary Grant uh, uh, earned a Best Oscar nomination for his role in Penny Serenade because he isn't just jaunty and good-looking or trying to represent you know, some sort of idealized American. He's someone with flaws. He's immature. Um, and uh, he, the couple that is presented is also not this you know, anything like the sort of ultra personality couple that you get with uh, in Bringing Up Baby or in the Philadelphia story or even in Holiday of Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. Irene Dunn is a very different type of actress. She gets top billing in this film. And much of the film is seen from her eyes. Um, as the film begins, uh, she, uh, as it becomes clear, she, just like many people take uh, scrapbooks, she uses records to be 
the indicator of the passage of time of different periods. And, and we all know this to be true, that songs in many ways can bring us back. There are certain songs that are the soundtrack of our life. And as the film begins, uh, to go back into flashback, you see that she started out her adult career as a girl who worked in a record store. And at record stores, Yitzchak, you might not remember how they worked, but these were places that uh, uh, were exciting. These were where you heard the newest music. You were able to go into a special room to listen to it. Uh, you could have someone play the music for you. Um, it was a it was a place to it was it was a place to sort of like escape, almost like a movie theater itself. And she worked in a in a in a record shop, and this is of course where uh, she meets Cary Grant. And this, of course, is the framing device that George Stevens and his screenwriters use to take the story of this marriage. And the marriage is seen from various songs that were played at various times in the initial meeting, the courtship. Um, that New Year's Eve scene, uh, where a very where they he proposes to her and they get married, and uh, and across you know as the uh, uh, the film progresses, various records indicate the different chapters. A bit of trick photography, as you can see the Victorola, and it sounds like RCA, uh, you know, got a great product placement there as the Victorola turns around. Uh, you can see the camera zeroes in uh, in the circle of the record and then expands outward to reflect the next scene of the film. That's a nice cinematic gesture, and it never feels very artificial. And, and again, let me just talk again about it. I think you agree with me that Irene Dunn was not like the typical 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s actress. She wasn't particularly striking looking. Um, she, she was very much an every woman. Um, she wasn't like a Carol Lombard. Uh, she wasn't anything like, um, you know, uh, or, or any of, uh, the other great actresses there. She, she didn't even have the, the, the stark, um, stare of a Betty Davis, um, or, or, you know, or Miriam Hopkins, uh, Tallulah Bankhead, or the beauty of Rita Hayworth or Hedy Lamar. She was basically just like a, a regular woman, um, but she emoted so wonderfully. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's different than, you know, we talked about charade also in the public domain. And there it was like, you know, a dream matchup of Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant. Irene Dunn and Cary Grant, Cary is obviously the better looking of them, but, you know, Irene Dunn, and I think in the other films that she made with him, like My Favorite Wife, she just represents, I think, stability, normalcy. Uh, she's all flawed as well, but not, you know, in, in the major way that, that he is. And basically what the story is about is that they're, they're young, they fall in love. Um, he uh, proposes to her. Um, and uh, she joins him in Japan. Uh, I don't know if you know about the 1933 Japan earthquake, but that features in the film. And even though, uh, you know, on their honeymoon night, which she spends trapped in the train, that might be the part that you remembered, that uh, the train leaves and she's supposed to leave the train. And she gets off 100 miles later, but she's pregnant. Um, and she comes to join uh, her husband, uh, Roger, that's Cary Grant's uh, role, Roger Adams, um, and she joins him in uh, in Japan, and he is working for uh, a big city newspaper's uh, Japan desk, and I found that once again, George Stevens is once again pushing the envelope here, because it was 1941 when this film was made, the war drums were already a significant we knew that japan was uh was was hitler's ally and it was just a matter of time till there'd be some sort of attack from the japanese and he has a quite a sympathetic view of the japanese a similar to the, the sympathetic view that in annie oakley's uh, the 1935's annie oakley on uh native americans um so he's he isn't afraid of 
of of humanizing uh, persons that might have been considered at the time of the film subhuman. Anyway, in 1933, as the film progresses, she comes to meet her husband, and because of a terrible earthquake that occurs, there was an actual historical fact in Tokyo. Um, the whole their whole home gets shattered, and uh, he loses much of. Uh, the money that he's invested into that home um, that he has recklessly spent on, on a lot of luxurious items. And more importantly, uh, his wife suffers a miscarriage. And as the next scene has her uh, on a boat to San Francisco and meeting with doctors in America who are telling her that unfortunately the injuries that she has suffered means that she can never have children. And, um, Therefore, um, this sets up the plot that they are now pretty much um, uh, without uh, a, a without. They're pretty much penniless. Um, he sort of squandered his his inheritance money. They're married, and they decide to live in a small town. And yes, thank you where Roger can basically be his own boss. And this, of course, is in the height of the Depression when newspapers were closing, similar to what we had in COVID and before. So he's running a small little newspaper. The chances of it, is, as Stevens points out, after many weeks, the chances of it actually expanding its circulation after months, he only expands it by seven. Uh, there aren't that many people buying the paper here, especially as it's somewhat of a, a it's 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 close enough to San Francisco to be squashed by the large city papers. Um, there's a plot device here, uh, and the plot device is the use of a of a sort of a character who you would somehow call comic relief, but is so full of pathos and is such as such inherently home wise homespun wisdom. Uh, and that, I think, is probably the best use ever made of Edgar Buchanan. Um, you know, you, you, I guess you could exchange Edgar Buchanan and um, William Demarest and maybe Walter Brennan and a couple of other different of these character actors who specialized in playing, you know, starchy best friends and things like that, who later made a career in television, as Edgar Buchanan did, appearing in every single episode of Petticoat Junction. But in this film, Edgar Buchanan uh, plays uh, Roger's best friend, who is also a whiz at fixing the uh, machinery that's necessary to put out this paper. So he leaves his New York uh, enclave and he comes out west. And again, Edgar Buchanan sports somewhat of a Midwestern, semi-Southern accent similar to the one he used in Petticoat Junction. So I don't know what he was doing in Brooklyn in the first place, but he plays a character with the first name of Applejack, <laughs> Applejack Carney, and he is an essential character. Um, there are no parents, there are no mothers, there are no fathers, uh, there's no brothers, no other relatives. Applejack, uh, Edgar Buchanan's character, is in a way the, the uh, character that, is able to inspire and able to push these characters, Roger and Julie, towards adoption. Uh, he mentions that he himself was adopted. He mentions that he himself had been raised in an orphanage and was adopted by a family, and uh, the like in the old days. And he says, maybe I didn't turn out so well, but it, you know there were a lot of good kids with me. And it's clear that he is the one who's planting the seed for both of them. And in this film. Uh, it's, it posits the idea that it's the woman who has the inherent need for a child more than the man. Um, and uh, uh, Irene Dunn's character, Julie, she's the one who, who really desires it, but he'll go along with it as long as it's a boy and as long as it's a two-year-old, it's already housebroken. And um, the the fourth character is the wise uh, mistress of the orphanage. In this case, played by, again, a very, uh, one of the most famous uh, character actresses who probably specialized in playing mothers, 
Bula Bandi. Um, Bula Bandi, of course, was Jimmy Stewart's mother in It's a Wonderful Life. And she played mothers uh, throughout her career, um, including, you know, great aunts in the Waltons, where she finally won uh, her first major award. Uh, she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress um, twice. She did not win, but she was a, a very a significant character actress. And you can see her in many, many films, um, maybe even from the silent era all the way uh, to television in the, in the 70s. So Bula Bandi is the wise and understanding, but somewhat prim and proper head of the orphanage who does a lot in terms of her exposition, but also telling us how getting a child works. But also uh, she represents the spirit of the bureaucracy that can sometimes bend when she sees how eager these, this, this couple is. Despite the fact that uh, they are pe- they the 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 paper is not working well, uh, they don't have the money, but she's able to at least get them in a probational way. She's able to get them the hold of this child, and although it's not a boy, it's a girl. Um, Roger falls in love with this girl as soon as she's able to put her fingers around her his hand now again obviously in this film and in the other film i'm going to talk about the director has to work around uh what the baby is doing i talked last week about how difficult it was to get animals to do tricks what i would assume is that many of these films especially when they were using actual small children they the actors needed to improvise somewhat around what the child was doing. Now, of course, special effects could do a little bit in terms or sound effects about the baby crying when the baby wasn't really crying. But in order to get uh, the interactions with the baby, maybe you would have to take many days to get it, or maybe you'd have to rec- craft the scene based on how the baby was reacting, or if there was twins or triplets <laughs> or other babies. Uh, uh, George Stevens does a great job um, in, in, in using the baby uh, to maximum effect. Uh, you actually do see the abject humanity. You see how how delicately they tread. You see how completely ignorant they are and how they don't know. There's a wonderful scene that's shot in one take where uh, every you know the, the workers in the newspaper all come upstairs to see the baby who has just arrived and will the baby be uh, diapered properly? Will the baby be bathed properly? And of course, as much as they're excited about having the baby, they have no idea of how to do it. And Edgar Buchanan uh, really owns that scene. Uh, the way he uh, you know, sticks his elbow into the water, the way he's able to uh, bathe the baby. The, a marriage is solidified through a child and then through the difficulty and vicissitudes and, and horrible things that occur, the marriage is threatened by the health and, 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 and the, the life of the child being deprived. It is George Stevens. Uh, and therefore, as we know, the, the director of The Greatest Story Ever Told, there is a Christmas scene, and Christmas does feature uh, in some ways very strongly um, as the baby <laughs> eventually grows up and is part of a Christmas pageant. Uh, and it's a very uh, emotionally evocative scene. Um, and the film really, in a way, is... Uh, very much like uh, Bergman's scenes from a marriage. Um, uh, there was a film that was uh, with Scarlett Johansson and Adam Dryold and the importance of the child cr- uh, glue that bonds the family, but still bonds them in unequal ways. The mother clearly, whether it's her own physical progeny or not, has a different sort of connection to the child than the father does. And I think this is uh, true uh, through today. And I think this other film, 1951's um, Close to My Heart, really goes with the same dynamic. They're both, in, they're both films in California, Yitzchak. And in both films, you have a character, Ray Milland is the father, Cary Grant is the father. Ray Milland, I believe, was also born in England and um, played Americans consistently. 
he's sort of like a, a less a dashing, uh, less handsome version of Cary Grant in many ways. Um, he's he instead of being a struggling newspaper uh, publisher, he is a columnist for a newspaper. Um, instead of living in a very modest apartment that they're barely able to make ends meet, he seems to be quite well off. But it is a he is a reporter, and he is not as excited about the child as his wife. His wife is played by the f- fantastic Gene Turney. And again, it's an interesting contrast of Gene Turney and uh, Irene Dunn. Gene Turney was was voted, you know, one of the most beautiful women ever to grace the celluloid screen. And as I've mentioned in um on a number of films that we've highlighted here, her range of acting is is really underappreciated, uh, and she really uh, really presents herself as a very fragile and needy woman. Um, unlike the Irene Dunn character, who you know is, is definitely uh, and somewhat fragile, but um, you know is, is somewhat clueless about what to do with a child when they adopt it. Um, the in in close to my heart. Uh, Gene Turney's character, uh, whose name is Midge, it was based on a uh, McCall's Magazine short story. Um, it's called Midge's Choice or something like that, or A Baby for Midge. Um, Midge, Gene Turney's character, is uh, has read up everything she needs to know about babies. And um, uh, similar, similarly, there's the, the Baula Bandi character, there is a an Academy Award winning actress called Faye Bainter. Faye Bainter was uh, almost like a leading lady in some of the silence and had quite a, a role um, uh, in Jezebel that she won in 1938, Best Supporting Actress. And she plays in this 1951 film, the Bulabandi character. She plays Mrs. Morrow, the head of the orphanage. And it, the care again, it's so similar that you almost see it as Achille and his uh, screenwriters were almost remaking sections of Penny Serenade. Um, the difference was is that post World War II, there was always the scientific psychological uh, aspect that permeated these films, and that was nature versus nurture. When it comes to uh, Penny Serenade, is really about how a couple that is childless uh, is frustrated with each other and how the marriage can be uh, glued back together by a child that's adopted. And it's, it, it's a film that celebrates the belief that love can be placed on a foundling. And, and it really isn't relevant where that foundling comes from, but what an adopted child can do and how maybe the adopted child can even be loved more than a child that was a product of, of a natural birth of, of parents. And that is part of what um, uh, the film is about. The film is about the growth process that a, a child engenders and how is it possible to even uh, stay together if the child dies uh, and if you take the child away. The angelic aspect of the child um, that's really some of the themes in Penny Serenade. In uh, Close to My Heart, the themes are really about if the child is the product of an illicit affair or the child is a product of, of a one-night stand where, the, where it turns out that the parents, the biological parents, are flawed people. Is it possible that the best parenting can somehow still stave off what genetics demands. And and the film uses a lot of heavy-handed exposition in the form of some other child who was the the heir to a fortune, but who was an adopted child that was taken in by some rich family in Los Angeles, but the child was a constant troublemaker. And this haunts the Ray Milan character as he's worried that this baby that he's discovered, 
although he's told again by the adoption agency that if he waits his turn to get a baby that clears all the paperwork, it's going to take two to three years. This is a baby that was found in police headquarters because uh, there was some uh, seedy a situation that led to the child being brought there by some uh, prostitute, as the, as, as the film basically uh, admits. And although the prostitute is not the child's mother, the child's mother uh, turns out to be a school teacher, but it turns out that the child, based on Ray Milan's research, is the child of a, of a convicted uh, cop killer, a, a heartless murderer of of a prison guard and a policeman. And the film really talks about the, it really puts on the table what is a, is a child that has no, is a child's history important or do we create the child's history? That's really what, what the, 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 what that, what, what close to my heart is concerned about. But um, it also indicates some of the same issues that's in Penny Serenade, which is that that when you have a disconnect between father and mother, in 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 close to my heart, Ray Milland originally brings a dog home for his wife to feel better. Of course, the dog grows up through the film, and then maybe a dog would be enough. Uh, he doesn't really want a baby. He doesn't really think he needs a baby. Well, figures he has Gene Turney as a wife. You know, why do you need a baby there? Um, but it's only because she wants the child that much. By the way, at this time, Gene Turney was married to Ola Cassini. And Ola Cassini, of course, was the fashion designer. And as I said, although he's just a columnist, Gene Turney wears some of the most incredible gowns uh, and, and, and regular wear uh, throughout this film because Ola Cassini made all the dresses for her. Um, the point, though, is, is that he wants to help her but he really is not excited about it. Faye Bainter, uh, the very uh, wise uh, mistress of the orphanage, realizes that when you have a situation where the wife is, is intense to the max and the husband doesn't care that much, the child will suffer. Similarly, when you have a situation where one of the parents is always worried that the child might turn evil or that the child can never be given love completely because he's just waiting for it, you know, like, like Rivka was waiting for Asaph to sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, to, to show his colors like love and Basuel. That's not a healthy place for a, a child to be raised. And I think that in that way, uh, close to my heart is more sophisticated in what it's at least the themes is trying to develop. It doesn't have a quarter of the artistry and the pathos of that film. There is no Applejack character. There is no wonderful Edgar Buchanan-like character there. But uh, in both of these films, uh, in Penny Serenade, because of the fact that uh, there, uh, 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 Roger doesn't earn enough money, and in uh, Close to My Heart, it's because uh, uh, <laughs> Brad... Ray Milan's character didn't sign the papers and that he was obsessed about finding out uh, who his parent was. And because of that, they're going to take the baby away. In both of these films, Brad, played by Ray Milland, Roger, played by Cary Grant, make their appeal to the authorities. And Cary has probably what many people consider uh, his ultimate traumatic scene in all his career, where he has to basically strip himself uh, down completely, a la George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, and admit to his faults and beg for the baby and talk about how the baby is, is should be theirs. And he makes this incredibly passionate case to this very officious pencil-pushing judge. Uh, in a very similar scene, uh, Kiwi... Uh, uh, 10 years later, has Ray Milland uh, making his case uh, to Faye Bainter and explaining how she could stop the judge from awarding the child. And again, he appeals to her and talks about the love that they have, how much his wife loves her and how much he loves the baby. Um, and uh, uh, again, it's a boy and of course it's a girl in, 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 
in Penny Serenade. But not only is the appeal and the crying that that Ray Milan does and the almost crying of Cary Grant very similar, um, the next scene where you have Gene, you could actually do this Yitzchak with a um, with a split screen. And I, I, if I was a film uh, teacher, I would do this and show my class. And you would show it's almost they're they're waiting at home, basically uh, in 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 an abject, an uh, abject mourning over the loss of their child that they've been raising uh, for the last year or so. Gene uh, Turney uh, in the later film and uh, Irene Dunn in the in the previous film. And their husbands walk in and the director shoots it only from, you can see the feet of the husband walk in and the feet of the husband walking up the stairs, giving you the possibility that the baby's not there. And then as the music opens, you can see that they're actually holding the baby in their arms and they've actually won the baby back. It's almost a, it's almost a shot by shot ripoff is is, is a much more it's a it's a much more beautiful film, um, but they both really, in a way, I think, do a great job in revealing the depth of pain that we know from the Bible, from the Torah on about what does it mean to be childless, and 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 the desire to have a child, um, and, and in that way, I think it's it's it 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 indicates the universality of of the need to to have children. Um, it is uh, a tragedy that uh, there are so many children uh, who are unfortunately uh, not being raised by parents and the homes where these children could go, you know, we try not to get on a soapbox here, but, you know, both of these films, I think, are a a sterling argument, um, you know, against, uh, you know, the, 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 the the pro abortion uh hordes because there's so many uh, wonderful families even though it's it, to go through a pregnancy is very difficult but there are so many the, the pain of childlessness um especially after multiple miscarriages or or, or illness is so intense that um the, the life change what it does the the way it changes people's lives to be able to get a child. And I think that for that reason, I think both of these films uh, are still very quite relevant. I know that it's not woke to, to uh, play up what I'm saying, but you know, I can tell you myself, uh, having had secondary infertility and my wife going through a number of miscarriages, you know, I can tell you that uh, I, I, I don't want to put myself in any anything like the situation of, of these characters, but I remember when we didn't think we were going to be able to have children, um, you know, how my wife turned to me and said, I want to adopt, I want to adopt a child with tears in her eyes. So it definitely, the film definitely, both of these films uh, spoke strongly to me. I'll tell you also, it was one of her favorite films because she was able to do a lot of method acting because she herself had adopted a child. Um, uh, similarly, Jean Turney uh, had a child born with severe birth defects. So she was able to channel some of that pain into what was going on with herself. So as much as we, we these women are women. And um, I think they, they, they bring to their performances uh, the, the stark reality uh, of, of their own uh, struggle with the maternal instinct and how that fleshes itself out. This, the film that you're going to talk about, a Roger Corman special, probably is 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 not just a one film that's remaking another. It's probably got tropes from probably a hundred different films, and that is 1963's The Raven. The Raven. It was shown the other night on Sven Gulli. It's the first time I'd ever seen that and heard of it. Uh, quite often as a a fun, funny, you know, kind of horror comedy type of a film, uh, which they made a few like that. There was the uh, Comedy of Terrors was another film uh, along the same lines, maybe not as 
directly funny, but still a very funny type of a movie. Uh, and it's a movie that uh, it's interesting because it's based on or inspired by the, the, the poem, The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, which it, it, it's not much of a story there. You know, you, you, the, probably I think the best presentation I've ever seen of the Raven on, uh, you know, in the visual media was, uh, was when the Simpsons did it in the first, uh, the first Treehouse of Horror Halloween special, the first Simpsons did the Raven and they showed this, uh, you know, somewhat spoof of, of the, of this brilliant poem uh, that's, you know, not really meant to be made into a feature length film, you know, it's just, you read the poem and that and that's about it but it was made actually twice into a feature length film both times with Boris Karloff uh, just about almost 30 years between them 28 years between them first time I think he'd mentioned to me he'd seen recently uh, the version of the Raven that Karloff and Lugosi had made which is a totally different movie a very violent movie uh, and then you have here just really a fun, silly type of movie that is actually more of the story of the Raven. Like it fleshes out the story. It's almost like, you know, making a some kind of a homiletical background behind this very brief poem into being the story of these different sorcerers in the 1500s. Yeah, give, uh, well, well, give me a chance here to read this very complicated plot here from the Wikipedia page. In the year 1506, the sorcerer, Dr. Erasmus Craven, and that's Vincent Price's character, right? Has been mourning the death of his wife, Lenore, that's Hazel Court, right, for over right. two years. And that, and you know, and that's, you know, where you have the, the, the poem, you know, that, that, you have this unnamed character who's mourning his his dear de, departed Lenore. You know that's right. Uh, right. Much to his um, much the dismay, much the dismay of his daughter Estelle. One night he's visited by a raven who happens to be a transformed wizard, Doctor Bedlow. And that that, that is, is that is Peter Laurie. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so you have Vincent Price as uh, the sorcerer. He's visited by a raven who's really uh, a wizard. Together they brew a potion that restores Bedlow to his old self. So he becomes Peter Lorre. Yeah, first Bedlow... he's just, uh, uh, you know, first you see a regular raven, which it's amazing how they trained this raven to do all these tricks to, to rest on on Vincent Price's uh, arm and on his shoulder and, and take things from him. And first, you know, it's just a raven and it's talking with Peter Laurie's voice. And then uh, once they finally transform him, it's first just like... He's and he explains that he's been transformed by the yeah. evil Dr. Scarabus, that's Boris Karloff, Karloff yeah. in an unfair duel of, of sorcerers against each other. And now both decide to see Scarabus. Right, Bedlow... Because- Bedlow was, was because Bedlow, Bedlow tells Scar, uh, tells Craven that he saw Lenore there in Scarabus's castle. Uh huh. So you know this is very similar to the Black Cat, which we talked about, right. where you also have um, Bella Lugosi wanting to get revenge uh, on uh, Boris Karloff, who also has this woman uh, in some sort of state of <laughs> of a frozen state of undead. Anyway. Um, so Bedlow, that's Peter Laurie, wants to exact revenge and Craven to look for his wife's ghost, which Bedlow reportedly saw at Scarabus's castle. Um, and they are joined by Craven's daughter, Estelle, and Bedlow's son, Rexford, was played by, <laughs> was played by J- incredible Jack Nichols, was being a very gracious host. And then, and then it gets into all the tropes of being in this haunted house and, and that they're they're, they're not exactly haunted, but they're trapped there. And we and it see- turns out that it turns out that Lenore is really alive, and yeah. and she actually seems to be in love with <laughs> with Scarabus, right? Well, she she's 
she's impressed by his uh, mastery of sorcery. So basically, Scarabus is the head of the sorcerer's, um, you know, uh, society there, the, the the magician society, which was uh, Vincent Price's father's position before that. And so, the question was, were they colleagues or were they were they uh, rivals? What exactly was there, you know, because Karloff presents himself very, you know, suave and nice. And Vincent Price seems to really not want to be involved in any of this. He's kind of trying to stay away from it, but he's stuck because he, he's so obsessed with the loss of his wife. And Laurie really seems like a, a really quite nasty character, a very unsavory, uh, not too likable character, but yet we're kind of have Rachmanis on him because he was turned into this raven and he wants to come back to being a human. Being a human again. Uh, Price and Laurie kept ad-libbing their lines and, and mm-hmm. Boris Karloff had no patience for that. He's just like, let's just get, stick to the script. Let's just <laughs> get this over with already. <laughs> you know, and it, it was it was quite it was quite a long uh, production for for Corman. It took them a, a little over two weeks, which <laughs> you know after after he made the the, the little shop of horrors two years earlier and was shooting it in three days, and actually on on, on the same set uh, that they filmed this film with Karloff and with Nicholson, he tried to put together, I think in two or three days, a movie called The Terror, which we spoke about uh, with, uh, in the, in, uh, with Bogdanovich. With- Who had um, really, I guess, the major iconic American horror star, star of the 1950s and 60s, which was Vincent Price. Uh, you know, Christopher Lee was making the films uh, for, in England but you know, in America, Vincent Price had sort of like was reigning supreme uh, from the mid nineteen fifties through, I guess, uh, we talked about, of course, uh, Doctor Fibes uh, through, I guess, the seventies, and then you had he was, uh, you know, combined with uh, the premiere of you know horror star of the nineteen thirties and forties, um, Boris Karloff, and I guess that that itself was enough of a hop. To have them together, um, but you know, and 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 what I remember when I look at the stills and some of the scenes that you sometimes see of this film, Peter Lorre seems. And you mentioned off pod that he died soon after the making. He give he gives his all in it though, and I think it's more Karloff was kind of a little bit phoning it in, but but uh, Lorre was ha- obviously he was having a lot of fun. Just being this jerk who you know this this real villainous character because he wasn't someone that you really he's he's not very likable, but he's really you could tell he's he's enjoying doing this role i think I think even more than than Vincent price uh, you know enjoyed doing it you know I think it seemed like really something that uh that he was having the most fun there. Whereas, you know, Vincent Price, you know, he always had fun doing these movies. Karloff, it seemed like he was annoyed. He was not really having it. What it, Price was interviewed about, and he said that they would, uh, you know, there was one scene. That, so in the end of the movie, it's just Vincent Price and Boris Karloff dueling. Just They're just waving their hands at each other, and sometimes they pick them up, their thrones up, and they're sitting in chairs, both of them, and they're picking them up, and dropping them down and they're waving their hands and then they animate and most versions of the most prints of the film you see you know lightning or or some kind of animation coming out of their fingers you know representing their magic that they're dueling with uh but they're uh, you know and there you see price is really you know in the pantomime there showing his his chops there that he he could have been a a silent star you know yeah. it, it was a little bit uh, you know, older, and uh, but, but, but it's not like an abject comedy like Young Frankenstein. It's not. No, no, no. It's and and or even like the comedy of terrors that had I think also both Laurie and and Price, if I'm not, and maybe also Karloff. I don't remember. Um, one thing is that the the screenwriter was someone we just spoke about recently, 
Richard Matheson, so the same that we had mentioned. Uh, the incredible when we, right, we talked about him, of course, his incredible contributions that he made uh, to the Twilight Zone and many other uh, anthology series. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so he, he, he wrote this script, you know, putting together, trying to make a, because his idea was the only, the, it was so funny to think of an idea of making a movie out of the Raven since they'd already done uh, Corman had already done four other um, uh, Poe movies. You know, he did the Fall of the House of Usher and the Mask of Red Death and, the, and these others. I think Mask of the Red Death was the following year, but he did quite a few. But those were never as funny as this one. This was a, an obvious, you know, uh, like you said, tongue in cheek, not a not an outright spoof comedy, but a a fun, funny little movie. Not a classic, and not really schlocky but really campy Hungarian Jewish refugee uh uh who had actually you know, he made you know the the Farlerina um you know he was a uh a, really a, it's it's forgotten the depth and the power he brought to his performances I I think in this film as you said you know he I think he realized that it was a film that he could ad lib on um I mean, it's yeah. cer- certainly you see his range when you compare it to his earlier, very serious, you know, with, whether it was M or it was Mad Love and th- those early movies that he did where he was really scary and really frightening. And here, you know, he was he was funny and he was and the difference was, I, I you know, I guess he always brought out that pathos like M, you really felt bad for him, like he was compelled to murder these children and it was something he could not control, and you felt sorry for him in a much different way, or even even Mad Love, where he's so despicable and scary and frightening, still you, you have a certain amount of Rachmanis on him, and so too here, he's, he, he's not a Rachmanis in the sense of his character, whereas the others where he's you know, he, he, he is not able to control himself. Here he controls himself and he knows he's doing wrong and he and he can control himself and he's not controlling himself and he's just this really this real jerk and he's just but yet you feel bad for him because he's got you know i, I mean it's the same feeling sometimes we feel for you know like you know i i look at the inmates in the prison and they just i feel bad for these guys even though it's all their fault there's they, they they're responsible for what got them there but still you have some kind of Rachmanis on these on these despicable people. Uh, yeah, again, I, I think that the character that he's playing there, as opposed to Karloff, is you know pretending to be nice, pretending to be suave, and he's and then he's revealing who he really is, and 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 the price really is consistently uh, the good guy here. I think. You know, he's really yeah, right. You know, he's wearing, as I said, a stickler told us, Aaron Beckisha. You know, <laughs> so he's sort of like, uh, you know, he's wearing a fez and a told us Aaron Beckisha. It is hard to take. You know, you know, we talk. I talk about uh, the difference between these films. Whenever you have, you know, a horror period piece, uh, you have to suspend your disbelief quite a bit. Well, well, the the one part of the the movie that you really have to suspend the disbelief. This is supposed to be in the fifteen hundreds. And uh, one of the aspects of suspension of disbelief was that this is supposed to be the 1500s and Peter Laurie points to a photograph of Hazel <laughs> Court. <laughs> I guess that's a real magical uh, bit that, that, uh, that Vincent Price was able to conjure up a photograph <laughs> well before photography, you know, 300 years before photography was, was developed. So that's uh... interesting, though, you know, Lenore, I guess, just like in the poem, you know, uh, is lost to uh, right. She ends up staying with her <laughs> with Scarabus. Well, um, when everything's falling apart, she and, and she thinks, you know, she sees Scarabus has lost his his magical powers. She tries to claim to Vincent Price that no, she she was just caught under his spell. She's totally innocent and he should he should take her back. And he, 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 you see, he has some, some, uh, you know, 
hesitation as to what whether or not he should take her back or not. And in the end, he he's not able to because the you know the the fire takes her away. But then she still survives the fire nonetheless. So it's uh, and then and meanwhile, uh, Boris Karloff turned turned uh, Peter Lorre back into a, a raven. Into a raven. So so Vincent Price, you know, he uh, is a, the, at the end. Uh, Laurie is like begging Vincent Price, turn me back into a human, and 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 he just closed the closes the beak and says, "Quote the Raven, never more." That they had to fill in, you know, Lahavdil. They had to fill in, you know, the stories, and they might not have looked at the Midrashim, even though the Mills Ten Commandments claims to be uh, based on the Midrash. It says in the, but it's not really, you know, the. I don't, a lot of those things are, are we don't have anywhere in Chazal that we're in that, and uh, so, so too they're just they're making up a story around these things, and and he does a good job making up this really silly, funny, humorous take on on a classic poem. And uh, well, you know, it sort of reminds me a little bit of uh, the Polish film um, that was made by Krzysztof Kieslowski, the Decalogue where he takes, you know, the Aseris Adibros and makes 10 little films, each one being the spirit of one of the Aseris Adibros. Um, you can definitely be inspired in, in an incredible way, um, you know, by poetry, by, by, by <laughs> 10 commandments uh, in ways that uh, you don't necessarily have to just fill in stuff the Bible didn't say. It's much more of an artistic leap uh, to, and, and, and whether Matheson was really taken by the spirit of of Poe or not, I, I think most people went to see this film to see something silly, uh, for the kids to laugh at it and to maybe be a little bit scared by it, and the parents to get maybe some of the jokes. And and, and it, it did pretty well in the box office. So I guess it's uh, it's 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 a little bit less forgettable. Than some of the other stuff that, that we could just walk away from, and I think it's especially a testament to to the really again the as you say you know Karloff and Peter Lorre uh, whose contributions uh, to film in the 1930s and 40s was uh, are somewhat immeasurable. Uh, again, I, I never really bought you know, Vincent Price uh, in the same way uh, as this icon of terror. Uh, yeah, right, he, neither. He's he's not really scary. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it just seems like you know he's sort of like filled the vacuum, um, and you know if you especially if you see some of his uh, his non horror roles, you know you can see you know he, he he liked playing somewhat of a seedy, aggressive, pushy character, which was so really different, yeah. which was so different than his his actual persona. His actual yeah. persona was a sweet, nice. A wonderful, uh, philanthropic, a fun human being, and you can yeah, someone, you know, someone enjoyed life a lot. He enjoyed cooking, yeah, he enjoyed, yes, art, enjoyed very, roller yeah. coasters, and he enjoyed yeah. his family. Here is that we have adoption adaptations, um, and for both of them, if you <laughs> if if you felt like you were at the movies tonight, watch your step on the way out. We'll catch you next time, and we're not going to say never more. Hopefully we'll be back. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.